Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Father, we come before you this morning to bow our hearts and, Lord, our lives before you. Lord, we invite you to join with us. And Lord, may we glorify you in our prayers and our singing, Lord, in our listening and in the speaking and receiving and the doing of your word. Thank you for this opportunity. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, who makes all things possible. And God's people said, Amen. we have a good God. Galatians chapter 4. We're looking at four small verses, 8, 9, 10, and 11. In Galatians, Paul has been defending the gospel against the Judaizers. And as I share with you, every generation is called to protect and defend the gospel against counterfeits, of which there are many today. It just surprised, well, I shouldn't say surprised me, it just astounds me especially during this Christmas season when many religious leaders and pastors and theologians will go on to different talk shows and speak about Christmas or the gospel and how often they miss the mark of what the gospel is. You see, this gospel is worthy of defense. We're commanded to hold it dear, to share it with others, and to live out its implications in our everyday life, is our hope and reason for living and serving. So far in Galatians, Paul has shared many of the blessings that we have received from God in salvation, such as election, God choosing us, calling God, drawing us to himself, regeneration, which God makes us alive, conversion, where God leads us to repentance and to put our trust in Him, to adoption where He makes us His own children. And we talked very quickly on our union with Christ, how God counts Christ's work as ours. And all of this salvation comes through faith and not of works. And that's the debate that's been going on at the churches of Galatia. The debate in Galatia has been how one becomes a member of Abraham's family in order to receive the blessings. The Judaizers say it must be through circumcision and observing the law. And Paul says, no, we become children of Abraham, children of God through faith. Blessings of Abraham and his entrance into the family of God and the only way into God's family is through adoption as no one is naturally born into God's family. I heard it again this week, and I do not recall where I heard it. It just escapes me at this time, but it was another one of those, we are all God's children. And I just, all that I could to hold myself back and say, yeah, we're all created in God's image, but yet we are not all obedient children. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, we're asking the questions, what are you doing? As Paul is coming here finally to conclusion. He just asked the Galatians, what are you doing? What are you thinking? What is wrong with your mind? Join with me as we start in verse 8 when he writes, 
Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, by the way, underline that verse in your Bible. That's the key verse we'll look at this morning, that portion. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Father, I pray that you would find what we do here pleasing this morning. Thank you for the time and the opportunity and the privilege and the responsibility that you gave for me to do this study this week. I pray that you would fill up what's lacking in my ability And Lord, I pray that it will be received with uh, ready hearts, ready to receive your word and ready to obey your word. Break down any resistance that may be found here. May the Holy Spirit not be quenched, but may he have free reign as he plants these words deep into good soil that it may grow a hundredfold. And Father, I pray that you would be blessed and honored in all things as we discern the truth. Amen. The conclusion from chapter 3, verse 15, is finally now coming to a head when he said, even with a man-made covenant, speaking of the Mosaic law and the promise. What Paul has been arguing in in these few passages is that the Mosaic law did not supersede or annul the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, 17, and 22, and so on. What we've come to learn is that there is no longer are we under the Mosaic law. We are now living in the days of the promise of Abraham being fulfilled. We saw that believers and all believers in Christ belong to the family of Abraham, not just those of the Jews. We see here that the Galatians have been relapsing by subjecting themselves to the Mosaic law and listening to the Judaizers. And what we're going to see here is the contrast of the old life and the new life as we look at four observations from these verses. And let's just go right into it. The first observation we want to see is that Paul reminds them of their former lives. He reminds them of what type of people they are when he writes, formally, good clue there. When you did not know God, you were what? enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So you need to remember as we go back to Acts, and we read that before of how Paul went into that region and began to preach the gospel. When he first came to the region of Galatia and began to preach Christ, they were worshiping false gods. The condition of their souls was destitute and condemned, as is all of mankind. In Romans chapter 1, a famous portion of Scripture, Paul writes that although people knew God, although men knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the condition of every man and woman and child that's born into this world. He goes on to say, claiming to be wise, they become what? Fools, for those of you who know the passage. 
You see, when people do not know God or refuse to acknowledge Him, they turn to worship something else. For some, it's another creature. To some, it's an idol. To some, it could be science or reason or some other type of thing. Paul continues to write in Romans 1 and verse 23 and 25 that people exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He goes on to write, they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That was the condition of those in Galatia before Paul shared with them the gospel. And Paul reminds them, you were enslaved to those former gods. You served something that was not true. In Corinthians, Paul had informed that church there that the gods that they served were not genuine by faith. Turn very quickly, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul writes, Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or earth as indeed there are many gods and many lords yet for us there is one God the father from whom are all things and from whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist in other words it doesn't matter there are many gods in this world we can go through uh, India and, the, and, and China and, and all the animists and all the other different types of gods of the Canaanites. He says all of those are fake. They're false. They are not genuine. They are not really gods at all. It doesn't matter what you set up and bow your head. There is only one God. But he goes on to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that not only were they not genuine and false gods, but he actually says, in fact, they were actually demons behind those gods. When he says, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons, not gods. So many times we may think a statue and a concept and, a, and all these different things, well, they're just, they're just their way to worship a god. Many times we'll say that, well, as long as they worship a God, that's the God behind it. That's hogwash. The Bible says that there's demons. There's no innocent little statue. Anything that you bow down, anything that you worship, anything that you enslave yourself to, there's demonology behind it. They are drawing you away from God. Paul reminds them of their former condition in order to point to them that the wonderful truth of the gospel and how it freed them from their enslavement. So first, Paul reminds them of their condition before the gospel. But now in number two, the second observation I want to make that's in verse nine is that Paul reminds them of their new reality in Christ, who they are. As he writes in the first part of verse nine, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. You see, the Galatians now are new creatures. They are no longer enslaved to the demons and to the false gods. Once they were dead in their trespasses and sins, they were considered as sons of disobedience and were by nature children of wrath. 
At one time, he says, you were called the uncircumcision. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Quoting Ephesians. But then Paul continues with the gospel. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace we have been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. He goes on to write in Ephesians, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of the cross. Paul is reminding them of the gospel. You see, the wonderful grace that Paul reminds them of is that all of this happened even when they were dead in their trespasses. God did this for them when they were not deserving, when they were not loving. Those who did not know God came to know Him. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, that if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What a great spiritual truth. For Paul is writing of their conversion and he's rightly concerned because they are not resting on that truth. But Paul also gives them a qualification there concerning knowing God. And that is God knew them first. And we're going to explore this a little bit further. But let me tell you, that phrase right there is a wonderful phrase that has so much to it. Many times we may read verses like this and we just don't think about them. But that, that phrase right there is the phrase that I want you to underline in your, in your Bible. Because it has so much power and so much truth to it. God knows us first. It's not as if they came to knowledge of God independently of themselves that God in His mercy and love for them opened their hearts in order that they may see Him and see the reality of who He is. They may see and know and desire and receive Him. Paul tells them that it's only by God knowing them and loving them have they escaped damnation and the wrath of God. Amen? Amen. For we find ourselves in the same boat as those churches of Galatia. And with that, as he reminds them of their new reality of God, and he tells them and reminds them that it's not that we knew God, but that God knew us, we come to the third observation. And that's the fact that Paul is perplexed by their actions. What are you thinking? Don't you realize this? I've shared with you the gospel. As we finish off the last part of chapter 9, and the verse 10, for he says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? He goes on to say, you observe days and months and seasons and years. What are you thinking? I don't understand. I don't get it. Why would you want to be enslaved to that old way of living once again? Paul is astonished of the reversal of resting and trusting in the gospel and the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Their desire to observe the Mosaic law is pulling them back into bondage and slavery to sin. As we've seen, there is no power in the law to forgive us of sin and deliver us from the power of sin and the death. 
Paul warns them that their desire to observe the Old Testament calendar and their attraction to Judaism, listen to this, is actually equivalent to paganism. For us, we may say, well, wait a second, uh, what's wrong with doing that? There, you know, we can find books that tell us these things. There's other religions that honor those things. What's wrong with that? Well, Paul says that they, by going to Mosaic Law, it's not that they were leaving to serve Baal or to serve some worthless idol. They were now wanting to come and worship the Mosaic Law and all that it entails. He says that's the same as paganism. It enslaves you. Just as the idol has no power to free you, nor does the law. It was never designed to free you from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. Now that statement alone, that statement alone would have incensed the Judaizers. Those would have been fighting words. And to be honest, this was a complete radical turnabout of Paul's own mind as we've seen his testimony concerning his zealousness and love for the law. He went out to seek and to kill and to persecute and torture Christians because of this very thing. But now Paul says to go back to that is the same as going back to false idols with demons behind it. It's a pretty strong statement. But Paul was competent to write this because he understood the power of the gospel in his own life. And he wanted others to see it. He wanted others to experience it, which leads us to our fourth, where Paul fears that their profession of faith was not genuine. As he writes in the last verse 11, when he says, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. What? Awful words to hear from someone you love. What awful words to hear from a parent, from a teacher, from a boss. To look at you and says, everything that I put in you has been worthless. All my work has been wasted. Maybe you experienced someone say that. Maybe you said it to others. Maybe you felt that way. Paul is saying, I'm afraid that I might have labored over you in vain. I'm afraid that your profession of faith was not genuine. You're so easily going back to false idols and false worship. In this verse, Paul is issuing a wake-up call. He's not using it so much to attack them, but to get their attention. Wake up! Wake up! Do you see the consequence of the road you're taking? Paul is giving them a warning about tasting and then forsaking the gospel. You see, Paul equates living under the law with a reversion back to paganism and idol worship. And their inconsistent Christian living leads to suspecting their profession of faith. To abandon Christ is to be cut off. The writer of Hebrew warns his readers in chapter 6 of Hebrews, this is the next screen, is that every Christian believer is to leave the elementary teachings or doctrine of Christ and that we're to go on to maturity. We're not again to lay the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. That's the gospel. 
and obstruction about washings and the laying on on hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this, he says, we will do if God permits. Look at verse 4, for he goes on to say, and here's the warning to the writer, to, the, to those that read Hebrews. For he says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the ages to come, and then have fallen away to restore them once again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to content. So Paul says here, do not apostatize. Do not walk away from the gospel. Do not walk away from Christ. For to do so would be to cut yourself off. This is consistent with how the Jews believed that they would be cut off of the Mosaic law if they failed to be circumcised and observe it as they should. The Judaizers were using that argument that they were going to be cut off to convince Christians to adopt the Jewish practices. But Paul turns it on its head and points out that they're error and warns them of the dire consequences of abandoning the gospel. So Paul here is trying to remind them of their formal way. Here's your condition. You were an idol worship. However, when you were a disobedient child of God, when you were rebellious, when you were objects of God's wrath, God came and knew you and loved you and received you unto Himself. He reminds them of their new reality in Christ. But then He's perplexed as their actions are not meeting up with their profession. And He warns them that could have dire consequences as their profession of faith is suspect. And for you and I, we could read through this and say many times, this happens to churches. There are very many men and women who walk away from the gospel. They may receive it with joy. They may taste of the Holy Spirit. They may say, I believe I'm saved. They may be baptized. They may become leaders and teachers in the church. But then one day you find them no longer darkening the door and refusing to even say a word about Christ as they reject Him. Paul is saying it's not that they lost their salvation, but the fact that they're proof of the pudding is that they never truly were Christians. And that ought to be a warning to you and I. As we stand here today, we too are in that condition of the Galatians. We too are rebellious children who were once rebellious and object of God's wrath, but God, God captured us and brought us to Himself. And then says, now live out that implication of the gospel. And I challenge you, and I give you the same warning, do not let yourself fall back into the former ways of our living. But I want to bring the message now to the point that here's some things of the challenge. I want to challenge you. There's some things that you ought to know, some things you ought to do, and some things you ought to be. What you need to know, and this comes back to Galatians 4.9, when he says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known God, known by God, here's what you need to know is you need to know the doctrine of the foreknowledge of God. Again, don't, the, as soon as we use, see the word doctrine, what happens? We all have like a kill switch, right? A sleep mode. Boom. You know? Or all of a sudden, oh, I've got to use the restroom. I, you know, I've, I've got to 
get out of here. But let me tell you, doctrine is important for you and I. Scripture says that it's good for doctrine to tell us what we need to know. And here's what Paul is telling us is that we need to know is about the foreknowledge of God. And that foreknowledge means that He loved us before we loved Him. And that's the greatest thing that you and I need to understand. As the Apostle Paul, or Apostle John, excuse me, wrote, that we love Him because why? He first loved us. You see, foreknew is the same as love. It equates with love. As God's knowing leads to God's love and leads to salvation. This doctrine is connected with God's election and predestination. Again, another two doctrines that we just don't like to talk about and don't like to discuss. As there's a lot of confusion and outright error in regard to this wonderful scripture doctrine. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. Most of you know where we're going here. You've seen this verse before. Romans chapter 8, verse 20, uh, 28, called the golden chain. Verse 28 of chapter 8, he says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who know God, or to, excuse me, to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. And that is what God is doing with all those that He called to Himself. God's plan for us is that we will be made into His image so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those who He called, he justified, and those who he justified, he also glorified. Wayne Grudman, in his book of Systematic Theology, speaks of many of the confusions and the outright error of this teaching. For many will say, for knowledge, yes, God knew before what would happen. And we know that. We say God is omniscient. But usually when people think God is omniscient, what they mean is God is able to look into history and He knows everything that's going to happen because He's not bound by time. So He can go forward five years, ten years, fifteen years, so on and so forth. But that's not the biblical understanding of foreknowledge. When we say God is omniscient and foreknow things, it's because the only things that happen are those things that God says will happen. And so foreknowledge is not looking into time and saying, oh, that's what I'm going to do. But it's God saying, I know and I decree what will happen. Let me give you a better way to say it. Many say that when we talk about God for knowledge and predestined someone to be, say, be saved, it means that God looks into the future and he sees all who will believe in him and then he says, well, since they will believe in me, then I'll predestine them and make them saved. I'll offer salvation to them. And to those that I look in the future and say, oh boy, he doesn't want to get saved, well, then I won't predestine him. That's not what the scripture there means. It's not what the word means. In this way, it is thought that the ultimate reason why some people are saved and some are not then lies within the people themselves and not with God. But you and I know that salvation is of God, is it not? It's not based on me, but it's based on God's love. Wayne Grumman continues to write, 
But he says when he talks about Romans 8, 29, he says that that cannot be used to demonstrate that God bases his predestination on foreknowledge of the fact of what a person may do because we know that we are saved by grace and not of what? Not of works. In other words, when he talks about foreknowledge, it actually means a personal relational knowledge that is spoken here. You and I know it from the King James. And Adam knew Eve and she what? Bore a child, you're conceived. So on and so forth. It means that there is a personal relationship and knowledge. It's a personal knowledge that involves a saving relationship. So when he goes back and he says, and once, and let me go back to it myself, when he says, but now that you have come to know God, he says, or rather to be known by God, what it was saying is before you and I were ever born, before we ever conceived, God knew us and he chose us and he loved us. Not because of anything that we've done, but in spite of that. For we must remember our condition before salvation. You see, there's nothing about you and I that makes us holy or lovable. Amen? All right? Now, for those of you who are married, you can probably say amen to your spouse to that. For the scripture tells us that we're all sinners deserving God's wrath. God doesn't choose us because of some good we did or some good we might be able to do. You see, knowing refers to choosing and loving. I'll give you three examples of this. We see Abraham. In Genesis 18, 19, God says, For I have chosen you, Abraham, and that you may command your children and his household after the way to keep the way of the Lord. When did God chose Abraham? When did he call him? When Abraham was righteous? No, we saw this last summer. When he was an idol worshiper. He did not know God. He called him as an idol worshiper. We think of Israel, the nation of Israel. In Amos, writing concerning the nation of Israel, God says, you only, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. In Jeremiah, he says, but I formed you in the womb, or before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. You see, God loved us before we loved him. He chose us before we chose him. We can think of people like Matthew, the tax collector. Zacchaeus, the one who was stealing people's money. The woman at the well who was living with, who had been married seven different times. The woman that was caught in adultery. And even Paul, who was a spiritual terrorist. It's kind of like we have to understand that God does not clean us up before he saves us. I think of a man jumping in a river. You can imagine two people fishing. Any fishermen here, by the way? Anybody here like to fish? I'm not very good at it. I, I, I enjoy being in a boat more than on a, than on a bank, because at least in a boat you could do more. But you can imagine yourself, two people on a boat and fishing. And one gets his bait and he throws out his hook and he starts to fish. All of a sudden, another guy strips down his clothes and puts on a, a wetsuit with a snorkel and comes with a net. And in his net, he also has some soap and a brush. And the guy gets ready to jump in the lake and he says, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm going to go catch some fish and clean them. What do you mean you're going to jump in the fish and clean them? We clean them after we caught them. No, no, no. I only catch clean fish. In the same way, many times, that's what we think how God works. 
God loved us when we were sinners. But then also we see not our, only our condition before salvation, but also we see God's demonstration of loving us. When he tells us that God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What do you need to know? You need to know of God's wonderful doctrine of foreknowledge, that he loved us before he loved him. And that knowledge is going to give us some great comfort as we go on. What do you need to do? Since you know God's foreknowledge, what should that cause you to do? Well, that should cause you to desire for others to know the love of God. Look at John 15, 16. You'll see it there on the screen. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. The Galatians, they were so caught up in their sin and their desire for the law that they were no longer sharing the gospel. They weren't holding it dear. And let me tell you, for us as a church, I worry if you and I really desire for others to know the love of God. You may say, yeah, I desire for others to know the love of God. Well, in what ways have you shared the love of God with others this week? And to be honest, I find myself in the same boat. You and I need to love others. The fact that He loved us and He knew us and He chooses us when we are sinners ought to cause us to have a great desire to share that with other people, especially to those that we love and know. I want to share a video real quickly. As we ask, how do we as a church, how do we as individuals measure this up? I want to share with you an illustration from Matt Chandler. I could have given it to you but verbatim, but I think it's more powerful hearing from him. As he looks at the church and says, what's wrong with the church? Why do we not desire to love others? And he gives an illustration of it. Would you just bring your attention to the monitors as we watch this short video? But it, it didn't take long um, before my passion for the gospel and, and my passion to see lost men and women saved um, started to rub against or collide with the church. And, and so it wasn't very long, and, and I, I, won't, I, I can give you dozens and dozens of stories, but, but really one that kind of broke the camel's back where I decided if I was going to do this, I wasn't going to do it as a churchman because the church, more often than not, was an enemy of conversion and not its friend. I'll give you an example. Um, this turn in me, this break in me happened that God has been just disciplining me on ever since. Uh, occurred my freshman year of college when um, I randomly sat next to a, I'm a freshman in college, I'm sitting next to a 26-year-old single mother who's coming back to school to try to get a degree, never been to church, didn't know much about Jesus, didn't know, and so we began this ongoing dialogue uh, about the grace and mercy of Christ in the cross. And so um, me and some of my crew go over to her house and babysit her daughter. She's actually in an extramarital affair at the time with a married man. And, and so we've talked through that, the wisdom in that. Um, they, they, this is the relationship we had, just kind of serving her and trying to explain to her spiritual things. A friend of mine was playing at a church in the area, and, and so I asked her to come. He was a musician, and, and so I said, hey, a good friend of mine's in a band. He's playing. Um, why, why, don't you come, why don't you come hear him? And, and so she agreed. She thought it would be a concert. I knew better. It was shady. It was excellent. And um, she came with me, and, and we listened to Robbie play, and, and he was tremendous, just a real anointed guy. And then the, the minister got up and he said, today I want to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, uh-oh. 
this could be a problem. And, and he took a red rose and he smelled it and he showed how pretty it was and then he threw it out into the crowd. He goes, everybody needs to smell this. There's about a thousand of us there, almost all of us college and high school. Smell the rose. I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it. I want you to see the texture in it. Do it, do it, and I'm going to teach. And, and then he began what honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart. I don't, I'm still wrestling. Um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It, it was fear-mongering at, the, at its best. It was, um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip, and you, right? And so I'm just thinking with Kim beside me, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and then as it wraps up, he goes, where's my, where's my rose? Where, where, where is it? Where's, where's my rose? And, you know, some kid came up. The rose is just completely jacked up. It's broken. The things are off. The petals are broken. And, and he lifts it up. And his big crescendo, I mean, his point is to hold up that rose and go, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling anger, like real, legitimate, I want to hurt him, anger, and it was all I could do not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose! That's the point of the gospel, that Jesus wants the rose, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ won. You're not even teaching the basics of our faith. Powerful thought. And that's probably how many people feel. And you and I know this deep in our hearts in the same way. Who would want me? But yet God knew us and loved us. Even in all my sin and even all my rejection of him. And this should cause you and I to desire for others to know the love of God. It also should cause us as we continue, is what you and I need to do is we need to demonstrate our faith and rest in God's perseverance. 1 John 2 tells us, Now little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame. At his coming. How many times have we dishonored God? How many times have we failed? How many times have we led tears on our pillow at night or looked in the mirror with shame? But we know that God says that we need to demonstrate our faith and rest in his perseverance. For he foreknew us, he still loves us. And what does he say? Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he will what? Glorify. Amen? J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, he writes, For this is very powerful and very encouraging. He says, This momentous knowledge, there is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my own good. There is a tremendous relief in knowing that His love for me is utterly realistic, is based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. You see, God loves you knowing the worst of what you did and what you're going to do. 
God still knows, chooses, and loves you. So that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in any way. You could not drive God away. No, you and I are always worried about it. That's why we keep secrets, right, in our relationships. Oh, if you knew me as I knew me, you would not want me to pastor. You would not want me to play in the music. You would not come and visit me. You would not want to be married to me. You would not date me. That's how we think. Because we don't realize that there's a love that transcends even who we are. But not only that, he says, in that way I am so often delusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. See, God knows the most wicked, vile, improper things about us and still says, I choose you. I love you. I do this in a little way with um, Landon, a little grandson. When he comes over and visits and, you know, he's in his thing, I always say to them, I see you, I see you, I see you. And obviously that makes no sense, except in my own mind, as what I'm telling you is, I'm not ignoring you. I'm seeing you. I know who you are. And that's God. As he reaches out and says, I know you, I see you, I love you, I hear you. That ought to give us a way to demonstrate our faith and our rest and persevere. So let me lead you then to what you and I need to be. Because of knowing and doing, what you and I need to be is we need to be thankful. As John tells us, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The only reason you and I can profess Jesus Christ is because the Father says, come to me. Come to me. And he draws us to himself. We ought to be grateful. It ought to cause our hearts to rejoice with gratefulness and thankfulness. It ought to be a mark of our life. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And not only should we be thankful, but we also should be loving. As he tells us in 1 John chapter 4, he said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Make your profession sure. It says in verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest or made known among us that God sent His only Son in the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He what? Loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected. And you say, well, how do I do that? Well, you and I need to love each other regardless of the baggage they have in their life. It doesn't matter how unlovable they may be. It doesn't matter how many times they have hurt us, how many times they've spoken against us. We are to love them. Why? Because God loved us while we were sinners. We need to love our husband and our wives in that type of way. We need to love our brothers and sisters. And not only that, but those of us that are Christians, our love is what demonstrates the OER God. So we need to be thankful and to be loving. Let me finish this with you and thank you for being patient. As we understand that we are known by God and that should cause us to do and be many different things. 
I'd like to give you this final word of encouragement from Ephesians 6, where Paul writes to that church, and he says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. And that only comes because God knows you. Father, we thank you for, for that truth. Lord, I pray that we take that truth now and we now explore it more so than even we've had here today. Lord, let us grab onto the fact that you foreknew us. Let us take that and let us work with that and deal with it and understand it. Let us be grateful and loving. Lord, let it cause us to action. Let us not walk away from this, Lord, and say, oh, great message. Maybe it's a little bit long. I love the video. But Lord, let us really realize what you have for us is that we're to know, to do, and to be. Lord, I pray that we would grab to it, hold of it, and Lord, that you would do its work that it's entitled to. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.